This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two very different guests, but uh, two great conversations. First up, WWE star Rhea Ripley, uh, one of the great performers right now in WWE. She will be performing at WrestleMania, which takes place at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood on April 1st and April 2nd. She is going against Charlotte Flair. And uh, Rhea and I had a really good conversation on the nexus of being sort of part of the WWE and media. How one goes about promoting, what kind of media training has she received, how does she determine with uh, between like what outlet she will speak with or not speak with, navigating social media. And then one of the interesting things is about when some people want her in character in an interview – and then others want to talk about sort of the business of professional wrestling, which I would say this conversation fell more into. So I, I really admire uh, her journey, and uh, she's a great performer, you know, athletic as hell, and just really, really interesting. So Rhea Ripley to start. I think that's something you'll enjoy, even if you're not a professional wrestling watcher. That's he, she is followed by Matt Norlander, who is a CBS Sports senior writer and college basketball analyst for CBS Sports HQ. And we get into the challenges of covering the NCAA tournament, what kind of access he gets, uh, why there's so many more national football, uh, national college football writers versus national college basketball writers. And then Matt gives us a little bit of insight into he really likes in terms of players and coaches as far as being really good quotes. So Rhea Ripley to start, Matt Norlander to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, if you've listened to this podcast for a bit, you have occasionally heard from some of the more interesting people in professional wrestling. Paul Heyman has been on this podcast many times, Renee Paquette, Seth Rollins, Chris Jericho. My next guest, Rhea Ripley, is currently one of the most exciting and interesting performers in WWE. She'll be part of what has become a major media and cultural event in the American calendar. That's WrestleMania, which takes place at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood on April 1st and April 2nd. Rhea won the Women's Royal Rumble, going 61 minutes and 8 seconds in that event. If you're not a professional wrestling watcher, trust me when I say that's a pretty impressive performance, given how long that is. She'll face one of the most acclaimed wrestlers in sports entertainment, Charlotte Flair, for the SmackDown Women's Championship. WrestleMania will stream live Saturday, April 1st, and Sunday, April 2nd at 8 p.m. on Peacock in the United States and on WWE Network 
everywhere else. Rhea, I'm exhausted by all this promotion, and I am pleased to be joined by Rhea Ripley, truly one of the uh, the great performers in WWE. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> all right, so, so much of what you guys do is about communication and your ability to connect with an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, promotion is obviously a massive part of your business, and what's always interesting to me is how someone like yourself uh, navigates interviews when some people want you in character and they really want you to amp it up. And then other people want to talk about sort of the business of professional wrestling, which I think this podcast will be more of. So how do you navigate that? Because it's in many ways, people are asking for two different Rhea Ripley's. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes it can be fairly difficult. Um, a lot of the time I do a little cheeky in between of both. Um, I'll put some Rhea Ripley sort of twang on, on the business side of my answers, but um, just make it a little bit cheeky, you know, a little bit more <laughs> me. Um, but it definitely is a mental game going into a lot of uh, media things, just like trying to figure out what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. And sort of, cause I do so much media altogether. It's just like trying to figure out how to answer things in different ways to make my answer different, but keep it the same at the same time. So it's just, um, I mean, you get used to it. It definitely, it does grow on you. When I first started, it was a very, very difficult thing for me, um, especially because I was a very shy person as well. So having to do all these interviews, it was very daunting and terrifying for me, but you do it for enough years and you sort of just get used to it. That's interesting because you're you're not terrified when you walk out in front of whatever, 25,000, 30,000 people. So yeah, it's very it's strange. Actually, it's, yeah, it's interesting. All right, so this is – I'm glad you answered that that way because I have this written down here. I want to ask you about it. Seth Rollins was on this podcast, and I asked him a very, very similar question about like how he's able to go seamlessly, sometimes even within the same answer, from talking about the business to really like amping up <laughs> the Seth Rollins character. And I told him at some point of that interview that I said, I'm really impressed by Rhea Ripley. Like she's just someone who feels like there's like an it factor there. She's great in the ring, but she also like has a presence now when it comes to promotion. And so here's what he said. He said to me, and this was, I thought this was interesting. He said, if I know there is a conflict that I really want to sell, which is essentially what our business is, I will toe the line a little bit more if you are asking me about a random performer. So he said, so you mentioned Rhea Ripley. I have nothing but good things to say about Rhea Ripley because I've got no conflict with her. I've got nothing to sell when it comes to her. So his point was that if I was asking him about you, he was going to play it straight. He was going to give me an answer about the business. Yeah. If I was asking him, let's say, about you know whoever sets in a program with at the time, yeah. there's no way he was going to give me sort of a business answer. He was going to Seth Rollins it up. Yes. Do you find – is it the same way for you when you're doing all these interviews? It is. It really is. Like you could ask me about – people on SmackDown that I haven't been in stories with for years. And I'll tell you straight how it is and like how I actually feel about them and just like how I think they're doing in the business. But if you say someone like, obviously like Charlotte Flair, like I'm going to answer it in a certain way where it's sort of pumping up WrestleMania, but then also like talking about how good she is as a performer, but how much better I am and how I'm going to absolutely destroy her at WrestleMania. Um, so it's, it's like a funny in between. Um, it's definitely easier to float between the two than it should be. Um, 
But like I said, it's just, it's something that you get used to doing after all these years of doing it. But if you ask me about Seth Rollins, I'd, I'd obviously say like, I love watching him. I think he's absolutely one of the best here in WWE at what he does. He's very, very entertaining. Um, I got to experience being out there once when he came out and it was when I was tagging with Liv Morgan and yeah. he came down the ramp with his creepy little laugh yeah. and his creepy little walk. And I felt like I had to protect Liv. But at the same time, I was so like caught up in the moment and excited to sort of be out there with someone as big of a name as Seth Rollins. Um, so yeah, it's just like, you sort of have to not so much think, but like strategically talk about people in different ways. Yeah. That makes sense. It's very motherly of you. <laughs> I try, you know, I am mommy. So yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, how much, um, how much media training have you done during your time in professional wrestling? I know the WWE probably offers that, but you know, you started in Australia. Uh, I'm not that familiar with Australian uh, pro wrestling, so I don't know if they would have had media training for you there, but can you give my listeners a sense of just how much you've, how much have you trained with any kind of media person versus obviously just um, trial and error in terms of how many media things you've done now? Um, so when I was in Australia, we pretty much did, no social media training at all. Um, wrestling in Australia, it's been growing a lot over the last few years, but when I was there, it was still fairly small. Um, so the media that we did get, we were just excited to get, but we didn't do any training for it. We just answered wow. in the way that we thought we should answer. Um, when I first got to NXT, we did a couple social media training days, but it wasn't many. Like I think I ended up doing like, four or five social media training days, but it, it was honestly in a big group of people because um, everyone in NXT, we were all learning. We were all new on the job and just trying to get better and get more prepared for getting drafted to Raw or SmackDown. Um, so we had like, yeah, four or five social media classes, but it was just an embarrassing sort of situation, I want to say, especially for me, someone who was so shy because like they'd bring you in front of like everyone in the PC and they'd have a person there that would interview you, but then they'd, right. they'd find something that you said in your answer and sort of like attack you in a way and like ask you uh, another question, but in attack just to like prepare you for those sort of interviews because they do happen every now and then. Um, but apart from that, like it was very like thrown in the deep end. Like you just had to like sink or swim. A lot of the interviews that got me ready for NXT were when I was in NXT UK. Um, like I had a social media day with uh, Mark Andrews and it was one of the biggest and scariest and one of my first social media days. And we went to um, a soccer club and just did all these interviews. We did, um, soccer drills with the, the athletes there and just like talk to like a whole group of people in this room. And it was extremely terrifying for me because yeah. I'm not from the UK as well. So like, it was hard for me to remember the buildings and their names and like just everything that was going on. So I'm glad that I had someone there to do it with, but a lot of the time you just sort of find your own flow and your own answers and how you want to portray yourself in front of the media. Um, for me, I feel like I'm still learning. Like I still do screw up every now and then and I get tongue twisted. I get nervous, but 
it's all about being a human and growing and learning from your mistakes. And that's pretty much what I've been doing. I don't know if anyone else has had more uh, social media training than me, but I definitely didn't feel like I had enough, especially me being me and being very nervous and not being someone that likes speaking in front of people. Um, but I've gotten used to it. Um, and it's just years of practice. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and that years of practice, I think it just in my interpretation has made you better on promos too. I just feel like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're comfortable in front of the camera or more comfortable. Yeah, it's definitely, it's changed a lot from my first few promos. I remember absolutely being terrified before going out there and now I'm still scared, but like, I find it a lot easier. Yeah. Interesting. The, um, you know, you may be at this point, you know, I know somebody like, uh, Roman Reigns or, you know, what, whoever has sort of been in the business and really been at that star level, they probably have a lot of say in terms of what media outlets they want to talk to and what outlets they may not want to on top of WWE asking you perhaps to do certain things. Where are you in this? Like, are, do you have the ability to pick and choose, um, when a media request comes in or, are you still, or is the company still sort of dictating more with you than you might dictate? Um, I feel like if I really wanted to, I could get more of a say in the media that I do. But me being the person that I am, I, I'm a very like, yes, I'll do that for you. Like, I don't mind. Sure. Like, I'll, I'll do that. Um, so I do pretty much all the media that they tell me about because I'm still trying to grow as a performer and get my name out there as well. So I feel like it's good for me to do these things and and for uh, to have my name sort of like thrown out there on Twitter and then have it retweeted by people and shared and just getting more followers for not only WWE but for myself as well, uh, putting my right. story across as well so people know who I am as a person. Um but I mean, there's, there has been some that I'm like, I mean, I'd, I'd rather not do that one just because of like the date or the time, like it might be conflicting with something, but if it's not conflicting with something or if like, I know I'll be able to do it. Like most of the time I just say yes. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, you're, you're slumming on this niche podcast, Rhea. So we thank you for, for that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of the things that's really important to WWE, it'd be important to any, uh, promotion in, in, uh, professional wrestling is to get mainstream press versus wrestling press. And so I wonder for you, um, do you find when you're answering questions or being part of like the quote unquote mainstream press, are you answering questions differently? Do you have a, a different approach? I mean, uh, you know, like for an, I'll just use an example. I don't know if this is like ever happened to you, but if it's a wrestling publication versus, let's say, the uh, Today Show on NBC or Good Morning America asked for you, these are they'd be very, very different audiences in terms of who you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, for the mainstream wrestling ones, it's a bit easier to speak just because there is a lot of wrestling lingo that goes around. So, like, I don't really have to be too careful with how I word things for people to understand because they sort of know what I'm talking about where like if it was a show like that, like I would have to, if I was to say like a certain word and have people not know, I'd have to explain that word. So like sometimes I don't want to have to do that, like just the word gimmick or something, like having to explain what right. that means yeah. to people because they're not wrestling fans. Um, yep. 
So there is like a strategic way to go about it, but I don't change too much. Like I'm still my persona, like the person that I am. And I'm still like very cheeky and mischievous. And I still answer in the same sort of ways. It's just with different verbiage pretty much. That makes sense. Yeah. Like whatever, you know, get over yes. whatever, you know, whatever, yeah. Whatever, uh, wrestling terms or lingo are you going to use? Yes. Even like they, they, face, they, they don't know what that means. So you got to say like good exactly. guy, bad guy. Yeah, bad guy. Change yeah, things up a little bit. Sense. Makes total sense. Um, you have a very big social media following. Uh, if you sort of, uh, combined all, uh, you know, whatever, you know, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. I should know if you're on TikTok. I assume you are. I don't know. So even I know. just got you... TikTok because they made me get it at yeah. work because apparently I'm huge yeah. on it and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, same here. I'm too old for TikTok. You are not. <laughs> so I wish you the best of luck. Thanks. On that. Um, but, um, you know, the, the reality for someone like you, uh, really well known in this sort of subculture, the, you're going to get a lot of mentions and people have, access to you at least um externally um you know just commenting let's say on something you do that's a lot for anybody in any age uh i feel like it's certainly a lot for wrestling performers and you know you're young like just chronologically as a human being like that's a lot and so i wonder for you how has that navigation been because you know you post something on twitter i don't know how much you read your mentions and stuff like that but you know, literally thousands and thousands of people can comment on this stuff. Yeah. And the thing about social media is a lot of it is negativity. Um, right. With social media, they have like buttons, but they don't have dislike buttons. So the only way to dislike something is to write a comment. And most of the time, that's what you see. You don't see the likes. Um, so I have like a love-hate relationship with social media. Um, I love it in the fact that I get to see what my friends and family are doing back at home. And I get to sort of like see what people are doing in their everyday lives that I follow. And I want to like know and, and just see what they're doing. Like if it's them going to the gym, I get to watch these new workouts and then I get to try it. Like just things like that. But it is a very, very poisonous place to be. Like when I first um, started getting a little bit of hype, I would see absolutely everything that I was tagged in, the good, the bad, everything. And it sort of, it, it drove me, but it also hurt me at the same time. Like I tried not to care about some things, but they would really get to me. But then I'm one of those people that loves to prove people wrong and, and make them seem like they're a fool sort of thing. <laughs> so like a lot of the negativity did drive me and push me to the point that I'm at today. Um, but with how big my following is now, it's very hard to keep track of everything. And sometimes I don't want to go on social media because there is too much negativity, which is really sad because then I don't get to see the cool things like fan art or people like appreciating what we do for a living. Cause at the end of the day, like we all love what we do here at WWE. Like we all love wrestling. We love every aspect about this job. Um, and we do it, for the fans and we really want to make them happy and give them a great show. So when you do see the negativity on there and see them trying to tell you how to do your job, it does like suck to see. Um, yeah. But I feel like social media is just such a huge part of everything today. Um, so it's, it's really hard to avoid in a way. 
and it does help uh, the product and us as performers because, like, even though there is so much negativity, there's still a lot of positivity at the same time. Um, you just don't always get to see it. But to have people talking about you is always good. Um, I know I, yeah. I got a lot of flack the other day because I posted that little girl crying as my profile picture on Twitter. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> that's great. And I just thought it was humorous because it's something that you can't really take to heart. It's it's me doing my job right and being proud of being such a bad guy to make a little kid cry. And I'm going to keep poking the bear because that's what Rhea Ripley would do. But people don't understand that sometimes. So like social media is the one place where they have to throw the shade and do all that. But I've I've definitely learned over the years not to care so much about everything. Like I don't see everything these days, not like I used to. Um, I still try and find all the fan art, but if I see a couple of negative comments, like I'll, I'll get off of it and just close it out completely. Um, not because it affects me, but because I just don't need that in my life. Like I really don't need it. Yeah, it's, um, it's emotionally healthy exactly. to, to, to walk away. Exactly. From. The, the, you sort of answered my question. Cause you know, one of the things that I love about, uh, WWE performers, AEW as well. They, they're both good. The people are both good at this. Um, you could really use social media to push storylines. Yeah. Like I feel Becky Lynch is a master at this. She's been so great for so long. She to me is like uh, the Leo Messi to use a soccer term of like uh, social media in that yeah. world. And you are you are starting. I feel like to use social media to do the same thing. Like you just mentioned with that little girl. Like that's really smart to me. Like that is just that is how. Uh, the best people in the business do it. So you sort of answered my question. My question was going to be, do you do all this on your own or do you have people to do it? But it seems clear that you're you're the one doing this. Yeah, right? uh, I don't have anyone that runs my social media. The only thing that I'm probably going to have run is my TikTok because I don't like TikTok. <laughs> but I still film all the videos. I just get them to edit it and put it together and post it. But everything else, like... Smart. I, I run everything. No one has my passwords, my usernames, nothing. Like that's that's all me. So <laughs> I have to take full responsibility for everything that I post. Um, and and yeah, I mean, like, I don't think I'd have it any other way because at the end of the day, they get to see who I am and and how I feel and how I want to portray my character. So it's it's cool to sort of have the reins in that. All right, a couple more here for Rhea Ripley. And again, uh, check out WrestleMania on April 1st and April 2nd. Um, she has one of the uh, main bouts on there uh, against Charlotte Flair. That uh, that will be one of the highlights of the weekend for sure. I've had um, Paul Heyman on this podcast many, many times. It was nice of him to come on and uh, promote the Paul Heyman brand. <laughs> and one, th- one, th- one time we, just, we did a whole podcast on promos because I'm just fascinated by this. He's phenomenal at it. He's one of the best of Very all good. time. In, in terms of doing promos. And he told me that he had reached a point in his career where the company trusted him to essentially go out there and do what he was going to do. He wasn't scripted. Um, it was essentially improv. And he had, you know, his work essentially had earned the right for him to go out there with a trust factor that he was not going to take the storyline in a bad place. He would just amplify the the storyline. Um, you know, you're obviously much younger than Paul in terms of being in the business, but I keep seeing like your, 
whether it's Judgment Day or your promos, it feels like you're starting to get, in my view as a viewer, a little bit more freedom than you used to have. So without obviously sort of giving up too much, like how scripted are you at the moment? And then how much freedom do you have to really put like the Rhea Ripley character where you want it to be? So it really goes week to week. Um, I've had a couple promos where I didn't really get too much of a say because there was things that they wanted to get across. Um, obviously they're like, yes, you can word it in your own way, but we pretty much want it exactly like this. And it gets to the point sometimes where I'm like, I don't even know how to reword this because it's not really the way that I would speak. So I might just say it exactly how it is and just try and put my own like twang on it, like maybe throw a mate in there or, or a real bloody Ripley or something. But um, a lot of the time, like a lot of the backstage uh, backstages, I get free range. Like I, I most of the time don't really read my promos until right before doing them. Um, because I don't want to be stressing about it too much, especially when I'm out there with the boys, because we go out there and we bounce off each other and we just like, we help each other through it. Um, like a lot of the time we just mingle out there. We're just saying random things like hyping each other up and, and helping each other out. And it's the, it's such an art to be able to go out there and just wing it. And I think that's where the fun comes from. And that's why fans sort of gravitated towards me and the Judgment Day as well, especially with our backstaters, because we just, we go into it knowing we're going to have fun. We're like, hey, let's like mess with this person a little bit. Like we'll go out there and we'll just start saying things that we want to say. And <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's most of the time it's Dom. Dom will just go out there and just, start talking all prison talk on them. <laughs> and then we're all just like hype guys behind him. <laughs> it's good. It's good though. It works. It's just, it's a, it's a good question. Yes. Um, all right. This is the question I want when I knew I was going to have you on. This is the question I wanted to ask you just because it is something like someone like myself could never experience, uh, but you get to experience this, which must be amazing. So as a performer, what is it like to walk out and have like 18, 20,000 people like absolutely ticked off at you? Like, literally just like disliking what you're doing, suspending disbelief, obviously, you know, they, they know you're a performer, but having talked to other people in the business, like the ones who really get into it, it is like an incredible high where you feel like you have the audience in your hand and you do just anything and you get them to react. So what is that like to be a heel in front of that many people? Dude, it's, it's so much fun. <laughs> it is like, one of the best experiences that I could possibly have just going out there and hearing everyone just absolutely hate on you and knowing that you have them in the palm of your hand and anything that you do is going to get them riled up and angry. You could, for me, all I have to do is whisper in Dom's ear. I could say absolutely nothing, but the guy in the front row is going to go absolutely ballistic thinking that I just talked <laughs> mad game on him. Like, <laughs> I, it's just, it's fun. It's, it's fun sort of weaving these stories and playing with people's minds and just going out there and just getting them to react in ways that they wouldn't believe that they'd react in public. And it's, it's fun to see. <laughs> it really is. I bet. I appreciate you answering that. I have two more for you. Um, this seems very silly to ask someone who has uh, traveled from Adelaide 
to to the <laughs> states. But I'm always interested because it really doesn't get talked about a lot. Is like what is travel for someone like you? Uh, I mean, I'll just ask you a couple of questions that are just always off the top of my head. Like, do you go through airports in uh, looking like Rhea Ripley, or do you go through airports like uh, like like sort of you know normal normal woman from Australia? Do you have to carry like your gear, or if you got a belt on you, do you bring the belt through the airport? So, like, what is all that like? So traveling is very grueling. We uh we get a lot of flights weekly, and it's um it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. Like early flights, late flights, lacking sleep. Um, for me, I get spotted very easily at the airport because Rhea Ripley is me. Yes, yeah. just I don't have the makeup on. Of course, I don't have my hair gelled back, but. I have like, I guess it's the way that I dress. It's very Rhea Ripley-ish because yeah. the person that you see on TV is really just how I am as a person. Um, it's definitely my style. Like I don't go to the airport in my flip-flops and like shorts and a tank top. I don't, I don't do that. I'm still going like my sneakers, my my black trackies with like, heavy metal riding on it and a black tank top sort of thing. Um, so track trackies. I appreciate the Australian slang. Thank you. Trackies. Well, I almost called, uh, what what are they even called? Flip flops. I nearly called them pongs and everyone would have been like, what are you wearing on your feet? That's correct. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I definitely do look very rearably ish because rearably is me. It's just the 10 times version of me. Um, if we have a title, like I, I put it in my suitcase. I know Riddle used to wear it on the plane because it does take up a lot of space in your, right. in your suitcase. And like, sometimes it's overweight. It's hard to get in the over baggage area. Um, so he used to wear his all the time, actually. It's quite funny. Um, but Have you ever had a uh, person who works for an airline just be like, hmm, what is this belt that you're carrying here? Dude, every time, like when I was Raw Women's Champion or Tag Team Women's Champion and we would go through uh, security, my bag would get pulled every single time. <laughs> every time. I and apologize for laughing. <laughs> You're good. They open it. They're like, oh, excuse me, ma'am, do you have anything in here that's uh, sharp? And I'm like, well, my jacket has studs on it, so I guess that's sharp, but it's not going to hurt you. And they're like, what's this big plate? I'm like, just. You know what it is. Like I come through this airport every week. You know what it is. Just open it if you want to look at it. Most of the time they just want to see it in person. <laughs> so like they open it, they look in the little bag that it's in. They're like, oh, are you a champion? I'm like, I saw you last week. Like, <laughs> yes, I'm a champion. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, all right. The last well, last one for me is, um, again, I mentioned earlier that you're, um, you and Charlotte uh, will be meeting at WrestleMania. And, you know, one of the big stories for the WWE over the last decade is sort of the, like the women's revolution and how women are have main evented now uh, WrestleMania. They're a major part of WWE sell. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure if like you had the financials, you could see like the merchandise and everything else, just how much like women uh, in that company are pushing that. Now, you you there was a generation before you two generations before you actually who sort of got to this point. But mm-hmm. I wonder for you. If you could just, um, for my listeners, like you are like part of this uh, world now that 30 years ago, it would not have been the case. Like it would have been a one-off match for a woman where now women are literally driving this company financially. And that's got to be just really exciting for you in that like, 
in many ways, like, there's not even a conversation anymore about gender in pro wrestling. It's really just about, like, who's a star and who can draw money. And that's, like, a great thing. We don't often see that in other sports, but in pro wrestling, at the WWE, that is reality, which, which to me is awesome. Yeah, dude, it, it really is awesome. It's uh, It's been wonderful to see how far the women's division has come over the years from being put on the show in bikini matches to main eventing exactly. WrestleMania. It's just come so far. And the women before us, they persevered and they pushed through and they tried so hard to get the recognition that they deserve as athletes, as performers. And it's finally like paying off for the big, the big bucks, you know, like we're, like you said, we're selling most of the merch. Um, a lot of people, they stick around for the women's matches because they want to see us absolutely kill it. Um, a lot of the times I feel like we go harder than the men as well. Like we're going out there and we're trying to prove a point. We're trying to get everyone to watch us. We don't want to be known as the toilet break or the popcorn spot. Like we don't want to be that. We want to captivate everyone and make them sit down and watch us and cheer and make as much noise as they can for us. We don't want them cheering for other people in our matches. We want to make sure that they're fully invested in what we're doing. And I think that's why the women's division has come as far as it has, because we've all just been fighting for so many years to get the opportunities and get the spotlight that we actually deserve. And it's been really, really cool to see how far it's come to, to watch Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks in the main event a couple of years ago. Like I remember watching it and I was just like, yo, like, first of all, that's my friend out there. Like, I was in NXT with Bianca and I've watched how much crap she's gone through and how she's just pushed through everything. And then like riding with her, hearing her backstory and like everything that she's gone through in life and overcome and to see her like go out there and be the main event at WrestleMania with Sasha Banks, who I know has gone through everything as well. It's just really cool to see. And it's like, women are finally getting the spotlight and the opportunities we deserve. And I can only imagine how far we're going to drive this women's division in the future. Cause yeah. to even just have me going out there and having a match with Tazawa, picking up gallows, like going out there, beating up the guys, beating yep. up Rey Mysterio, beating up edge. These are people that I watched as a kid. And now me as a female, I get to go out there and punch them in the face. Like, <laughs> It's just, it's so cool to see how far, like, we've all come. And I'm so excited to see where the future holds because, like, it's yeah. just going to go up and beyond from here. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. They're, you know, they're pushing you on the marquee, your match with Charlotte. That sort of says it all. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Bianca. I do know her backstory and I've read about it. She's an amazing athlete, by the way, in other sports at Tennessee. Yeah. And, uh, you see her athleticism like on display in the WWE. It's it's crazy just like where the athleticism is of the of pro wrestling list now. Rhea, uh, I really enjoyed this. This was so this is I really, really appreciate your answers and your thoughtfulness. Let me uh, before you get out of here, give one last promo. Rhea Ripley, as I mentioned, um, if you again, if you're not a professional wrestling fan, like Google her and or check out her at WrestleMania. Like she is really like just a performer like who is unique and unlike others you have seen in in sports entertainment before she is taking on charlotte flair for the smackdown women's championship at wrestlemania at sofi stadium that's over two days uh this event has just gotten so big april 1st and april 2nd and again if you don't have the wwe 
uh, network that's on Peacock in the U.S. and obviously WWE Network everywhere else. Rhea, thank you uh, so much for making the time. Um, I'll be watching here from my uh, abode in Toronto, but uh, I-, I wasn't bullshitting you. I-, I really admire you as a performer, and uh, and I hope I can talk to you again like next year or something like that because you will be a you will be a big you will be you will be a bigger performer uh, one year from now. I am I am sure of this. Thank you so uh-huh. much uh, for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me, mate. All right, as I said at the top, excited to bring in CBS Sports senior writer and college basketball analyst for CBS Sports HQ, Matt Norlander. Very exciting that Matt is joining this podcast live from Madison Square Garden. Matt, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm in the, uh, they told me this was the Richard Deitch radio room, but I don't see a plaque on the wall. I think that's coming after the end of this season here. It is an honor to be on this show and I will make sure the powers that be here at the garden, uh, fix this immediately, Richard. All right. I, by the way, Matt, I like that you're doing shtick. First time you've been on the show before. That's very exciting to me. Um, <laughs> all right. So I have a couple of, uh, broad questions for you and then we'll go a little more micro, okay. but I'm interested in, um, covering the NCAA tournament. I've done it twice, but it's been a while. You, this is sort of your life. I've, uh, I've admired your work for a long, long time because you are so passionate about this sport. So what is the most challenging part of covering the NCAA tournament for someone like yourself who's a national writer? Good question. The most challenging part, um, I want to answer this in two ways. For me, specifically in my, in my role, it is you know trying to write things that I want to live for five, 10, 15 years after the title game, just to be able to go back and say, okay, that, that, that encapsulated what that moment meant for that team that won the national championship game or had an epic final four win. Um, and balancing all of that in the writing duties with now, I just happen to have a lot of on camera stuff, you know, for CBS sports HQ, uh, that's our 24 seven, you know, digital sports news channel highlights analysis, all of it. I had interviewed the winning coach after the national championship game, uh, sometimes on the floor and then sometimes not the obviously COVID 2021 uh, complicated matters, but getting doing that, you know, just there's all sorts of stuff that uh, that's involved with that. So that is Richard, that is actually the most challenging thing, but I love the challenge and it's an amazing thing to be part of. And I take a lot of pride in it overall in terms of covering NCAA tournament as a, as a media member, uh, I think the most challenging thing about covering the tournament is to present the storylines and developments as they happen over the course of three weekends and making them framing them properly for an audience that uh, is pretty widespread because college basketball, as we've seen really with uh, with television numbers that have been released here in recent days as well, college basketball's intake, it's actually going up in terms of viewership in some ways. And I can just say as, you know, I co-host the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Uh, that listenership continues to rise. And so there is a very intense, dedicated portion of a fan base that is not, it's, it's niche when you compare anything to the NFL, right? But I, I think that the amount of people that are invested in college basketball almost gets undersold sometimes. And I think you might agree with that, particularly when it comes to women's basketball, which continues to rise and rise and rise. But the challenge is getting that audience and not being too repetitive on this stuff, but at the same time, all too clearly, Richard, there is a significant portion of the audience that might have just dialed in after the Super Bowl. Might have dialed in because they were like, okay, it's conference championship week. Might have dialed in because the Monday after Selection Sunday, they finally got a bracket 
and providing a balance of coverage that is both informative, broad, but isn't so repetitive where it feels like I'm writing about this thing or talking about this thing. And I've done this, you know, six times over the past six weeks and I, and I don't want to, you know, water it down or, or make it seem a, a little bit too bland because this, the subject matter might be a little bit repetitive. Yeah. We'll get to viewership of college basketball in a little bit. Um, what, um, what kind of access do you receive during the tournament? It's pretty good. Um, I've maintained this for a long time. The thing that I really enjoy and am very thankful for with college basketball is that uh, the access to the coaches uh, is, is, is the best of any mainstream American sport uh, among men's sports. It, the, you know, and I, when I talk with uh, other fellow, and I say this is a, a loving term, as you know, Richard, when I talk with other hacks that are covering college football, the access to those coaches is nowhere near what is in college basketball. And that's within the context of a season, certainly during the off season. And so because of that, there is a very good relationship between the media and college basketball coaches, which is not to say that the media overall is resistant to criticize or, or to go after college basketball coaches. I think that there have been plenty of times where that has been the case and hopefully will continue to be a case where, it's, where situations are appropriate. I think you've seen that, frankly, with Nate Oates and Brandon Miller this season. When it gets to the tournament, the access is pretty good. The people at the NCAA do a pretty good job at making um, players and coaches available through numerous press conferences. There are things called breakout sessions where a player will go sit at a table or a dais and then they'll talk for 10, 15 minutes and media can float in and out. And that happens before the final four, you have open locker rooms. That process has happened again. Um, credit to Dan Gavitt, who's in charge of uh, basically the NCAA tournament overall. He's in charge. He's, you know, he's executive vice president of basketball for the NCAA uh, completely gets it and understands that the NCAA and I'm going to speak for the men's basketball tournament specifically because I've never covered the women's tournament, but the men's basketball tournament is only benefited by helping the media to have access to players and coaches. And um, I've never had a complaint in terms of how the NCAA runs it when it comes to that stuff. I think they, they, you could make the case. I think they believe this in the halls in Indianapolis, Richard, uh, the very single thing that the NCAA does best and it gets plenty wrong, but the thing it does best is how it actually runs and operates the NCAA tournament, which most people don't realize is a ridiculous logistical challenge on an annual basis. Do you find that working for CBS Sports gets you more access because you're working for a rights holder? I do not find that to be the case. No, um, I, it, you could say it certainly helps, but particularly with where how I kind of was on the on the come up over the past decade plus. You know, I, when I was hired at CBS Sports in 2010, I was a college basketball blogger. I had blogged about college hoops. I had my own independent college basketball blog. And uh, I've always kind of attacked reporting the tournament with, uh, with, that, with that attitude, to be honest. And I'm not naive enough to, to think that because CBS Sports is a rights holder that it wouldn't certainly help. But I think that my relationships with the coaches and then the people that run the NCAA tournament uh, and the SIDs, that's really what helps. Um, and just in my own experience, like if you are a reporter that is not even college sports specific, but if you're just, you know, if you're a writer that, that does the job, does it well, does it right? Like there's certainly uh, opportunities to have almost any kind of access that you could ask for reasonably speaking, like this is reasonably speaking. Um, it, myself and maybe some other reporters that have gotten to know some of these coaches 
or these SIDs and have longstanding relationships, like there is the potential for that. Um, I'll give you a great example of how, why CBS Sports isn't the only one. Nicole Auerbach did a great uh, game after story when Nova won the championship and she was with Jay Wright in the Villanova uh, after party at the team hotel. You know, we've seen that. So um, that's just another example of how uh, the sport, thankfully, um, while head coaches always have some, there's a certain level of uh, competitiveness and paranoia and all that stuff. Like that's, that's there in college hoops as it is any other sport. They, they very much understand how um, telling stories and allowing the media to do their job and trusting the media to do it responsibly uh, has helped with the coverage of the sport, in my opinion. All right. Let me ask you a question about college football versus, uh, versus college basketball. You can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, but I think this is a fair statement. It's very clear or I shouldn't say it's very clear. It seems clear to me that there are more national writers in college football than there are in college basketball. Certainly in college basketball hotbeds, we see local writers covering stuff. And there are definitely college basketball national writers like yourself. Obviously, I work with a, a number of them at The Athletic. But it does seem that college football, there's there's more people doing this nationally Um like the way you do for college basketball. One, do you agree with that? And two, if you do, why do you think that is? I do agree with it. Um, why do I think that is? It's because football is the most popular sport in the country and has been for a long time. And uh, water is going to find its way. And so when you think about the people that would have been interested in covering football five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, they were going to grow up watching it. And so there's just going to be more general interest. Like college football is just, and now it's college football has hit a point where it's way more popular now than it was in even 2004, let alone 1994 on a national level. Um, so it is that it's the football effect. I also think that it's interesting. It, it, it is a uh, chicken and egg kind of stuff because uh, football coverage is so widespread. And I think a lot of it is validated. And you're talking to a guy who loves the NFL. I do enjoy college football, but my two favorite sports are the NFL and college basketball. And I've said this story a couple of times in the past, but when I was trying to determine, all right, I want to, I want to go into sports writing. What do I want to do? I specifically chose college basketball because my love for it pretty much equaled the NFL, but I equated it as to when you're starting a band, there's going to be 75 people that can play the guitar and there's going to be three people that can play the drums. Okay. So the pathway to entry was going to be easier because college basketball was less crowded. There are so many people that are growing up with football on television all the time. Right. And now podcasts, just larding the, the sports scene on that end of it in digital media. And so I think it's just, it's inevitable when it comes to that stuff, but there are still plenty of really good national media members covering college basketball in a variety of ways in podcasting, in writing, on TV, in digital properties there. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good crop. Like there's, there are reporters who have tremendous chops. I know you know that. And I do expect it to continue to grow uh, in the men's side, but obviously also the women's side, there's a lot of really optimistic signs with the women's tournament. And again, I can't speak too, too much to this. It's just more in talking to folks in the industry and, you know, I know there's a media rights deal coming up for the women's tournament and it's expected to be by far the best ever. And so I, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the future of how the sport is growing on both the men's and women's side and uh, the propensity to have even more people wanting to cover it on a national level in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, you're right on the women's side. Yeah, it's been a, obviously a couple of years since I covered it on a, on a more uh, weekly, monthly basis when I worked at Sports Illustrated. And I certainly do now because The Athletic obviously has people who do that and, and they do it. They do it really well. 
But one thing that if you talk to women's basketball people and executives and uh, you, maybe you do a little bit, I, I know you obviously would do more with the, the men, is that they're, they're very much their future in some ways, of course, is tied to football. And the college football rights deals that have happened, we've seen obviously realignment happen because of that. You know, once upon a time, Matt, um, there was a time in this country, like, you know, the 80s, where college basketball in certain parts of the country was king uh, compared to college football. And the notion of somehow that a college basketball program having to follow like what college football did would have seemed absurd. That's clearly not the case anymore. You deal with a lot of the... um, basketball coaches and basketball administrators in conferences that are major football conferences. And again, I'm asking you to be a little bit broad here, but what have they said to you just in terms of the fact that their scheduling and their futures in so many ways are, are essentially tied to what the college football media rights deals have been with the ESPNs and the Fox, et cetera. You can talk to 20 coaches, get 20 different opinions. You know how that goes sometimes, but broadly speaking, Richard, uh, a lot of, College coaches absolutely despise it. Yeah, they despise while they get it, they despise the idea that a lot of logistical local rivalries have been stripped away. Conference realignment has broken up some of the spirit of the sport. And because of that, it has it has certainly dis- disintegrated some of college basketball's relevance during the regular season. Uh, I keep I continue to go back to and um I, I just a conversation I've had with a, a few people in, in terms of like the end, and I'm going to circle back to your general question here, but it almost feels like every time we talk about this stuff in terms of what it means for a, a, a sports regular season relevance, the NFL is a beast unto itself and nothing compares. Like college football is so much bigger than college basketball. And the gap between those two sports is smaller than the gap between college football and the NFL. Like there's not even, a, there's not even a competition. So within that context, there is plenty of frustration that these media rights and conference movement and how it's all being dictated by football is stripping away some of the soul of college basketball. Now I would argue that um, the games are still so much fun. We do get stars every single year. You get interesting stories. There's a seven foot four behemoth playing for Purdue who is right out of 1974, right? <laughs> Zach Eady is going to win national player of the year. And he's just a fascinating he person to watch. Lives, play uh, from the, uh, from the current country and province I now live in. Correct. That's correct. From Toronto, didn't even grow up playing basketball. My point is this, the sport will always provide stories and things to talk about on an annual basis, regardless of the stuff that happens around it. But it is frustrating that you do have things like Maryland not playing in the ACC, still idiotic. I'm about, as I talk to you, I'm getting ready to cover a doubleheader here. Love a Friday night at the Garden Biggies doubleheader semifinal. Love it. It is idiotic that Syracuse is in the ACC and not the biggies, that kind of stuff. It does uh, frustrate a lot of coaches and, you know, athletic directors as well. University presidents are ultimately the one that are making these decisions. And sometimes, sometimes, yes, sometimes no, as I understand it, working with executives at, at, at you know, TV networks and all of that, but it has stripped away. And, and I can't help but wonder, this is something for decades down the road, because who knows, Richard, like we haven't even lived in, 80 years worth of, uh, of a media cycle with all these major American sports with television, right? We could look up, if we're still lucky to be here 30 years from now, and be like, remember remember the 2010s and 2020s when college football was king? And now look at, like, you know, football's health as a sport is in no immediate danger, but it is, you know, inherently, like, the most dangerous sport among the mainstreams that's played out there. We, you know, I know you've done reporting and talked about this plenty, so um, 
there's also that potential. This, on some level, we could be going through just the absolute peak of the sport, and then maybe we look up and, and something's changed, or, or maybe not. But uh, despite all of that, college basketball still thrives, and it's a good sign. I think you'd probably agree with this, you know, as I, sp- again, speak here from the garden. The Big East, it separated itself intentionally. said, no, no, we're going to put everything into what we are. We're going to go basketball. And it is no coincidence that the Big East is still – and it's not just because it's at the Garden, but the Garden matters. Like, it's the best conference tournament. It has the most excitement. Uh, I'm going to go step under this arena, cover this game, and UConn fans are going to be blasted out of their mind and, like, loving it with going up against Marquette, Xavier, Creighton. And these aren't even – I'm not even talking about Providence isn't there. Georgetown has never been worse as a program. St. John's is trying to lure Rick Pitino as we speak. And the Big East still has such tremendous health as a conference, and it has done so without football, and that's a really positive sign. Do you think uh, in your lifetime – you'll see schools try to push for playing a basketball, you know, play uh, football being a football only conference and then putting your basketball teams in a basketball only conference, even at the same. I school. think, I think it's possible. I'll tell you what, I, I remember having a couple of, of discussions with this on, on athletic directors at the small level and bigger level over just, I don't know, year and a half, two years on this. And, <laughs> it's interesting to hear people talk about wanting to do that, but actually putting it into action is hard because there is so there is, I mean, you could write a dissertation on the, on the true benefits of making college football, its own entity, its own universe with its own conference affiliations. And then everything else, make it geographical, make it logical, make it bake into the rivalries. But because of how the money is intertwined between athletic departments and football, basically keeping uh, these departments either barely in the black, usually in the red, and helping facilitate even having 12, 14, 20 scholarship sports for both men and women, it's why it hasn't happened yet. And you need to figure out if you even can how you could actually do that. Because if football did that, what football would want to do then is like, okay, if we're going to do that, then we get all the money. And then what are you going to do if that happens? So I think we are a ways away. I don't know if I ever live to see the day. I would love to see it. But college sports is still very, very far away from that. Just like it is. I just want to chime in on one thing here. Because I've heard you say this before um, about, or I believe, I believe I've heard you say it before about the idea that maybe, you know, the power conferences could split off uh, and maybe create, you know, their own and still play tournament that takes so much logistical overhead and you'd have the same problems, except these schools would take it on instead of the NCAA. I frankly don't ever, ever see that happening because to do the NCAA tournament, to hold that, to host it, to go into every little thing and big thing that goes into it is a, it's, it's a massive, massive undertaking. And if theoretically, like the three or four biggest conferences break off and say, we're going to do our own tournament. Yeah, they could do it, but it would, uh, uh, they might be biting off more than they can chew. Why do that when the NCAA is already there willing to do it for you and doing, doing it better than you, ask, you, know, you possibly ever could? Uh, last, uh, last two. Uh, again, you're welcome to go name more than one if you must, but who's the best player right now to interview in college basketball? Who's the best coach to interview? The best player to interview is Drew Timmy. I don't know if that's a, if that's a, you know, a little softball over the middle of the plate because I just did a huge feature on Drew Timmy, who is a one-of-a-kind character and is another classic example of why I love college sports. Drew Timmy, uh, as one of the assistants on Gonzaga told me, that he has lived every moment of a college life. And by that, he has been a four-year BMOC, big man on campus, and embraced everything that college has afforded him. 
at the player level, at the everyday Joe level, awesome. And he is, <laughs> he has no filter. He cusses on record way, way more frequently than Gonzaga would like him to. Um, I had a blast reporting out that story for the better part of five months on just his legend and legacy. And he has now scored more points than anyone in Gonzaga history. Um, he has a claim to the greatest career in program history. Best, I think you said then best coach, best quote, best interview. Yeah. Is that your, uh, yep. is that your question? Yep. yep. Uh, okay. If you have me narrow it to one, I'm going to say it's Tom Izzo because Tom Izzo, it's not that he never will go off record, but when you talk to Tom Izzo, he's basically willing to be on record all the time, doesn't even have to give you a qualifier. And because of that, because, and the thing is, he is from a different era. Like some of these coaches now that are 45 or younger, that they come up in it, like there are plenty of amazing coaches to talk to that are great quotes. But the coaches who are not afraid to just be themselves on the record all the time, say what they mean, I would rank Izzo, but just, and there are so many uh, more great coaches on the record um, or even off like Dan Hurley is, is a character. Matt Painter will tell you almost anything on the record. A great, great coach that hasn't yet broken to a final four, but I think he's got a, I think he's got a really, really good shot to do so. Who else is really good? I actually want to give you a few here. Bill Self is normally pretty, pretty good. Um, I'd, I'd say he ranks up there. Uh, Shaka Smart, I, I, I say a lot about. Um, I think he's been pretty good. Eric Musselman, Eric Musselman, who's traveled quite the journey. Check his Wikipedia page. See where yeah, he's been agreed. over the years. And then if uh, one more, and I just thought of it here, uh, number two behind Izzo would be Ed Cooley at Providence, who is among the funniest people I've ever met, is super self-deprecating, but very, very accomplished, very... Uh, very good, very good on the record. And it's part of what makes college sports so fun. And I would say this at the football level and the basketball level, Richard, is you have these coaches that are like either by soundbite or just if you're talking to them and then that translates to writing on the paper or, or typing it out, they can give you stuff that just helps bring copy to life. And I don't take that for granted. There are some bland guys. There's no doubt about it. Like they're, they're out there and that's fine. They're human beings. Every human being is different. But at the college sports level and in college basketball, I do find that you get much more reliably entertaining and informative quotes from head coaches, certainly than you do at the NFL level and the NBA level. It's just, it's just a different world. And for that, I'm, I'm very appreciative. And it's why it's, it's really, it's, it's a major reason why I do love covering the sports so much. In addition to reasons that I fell in love with it, Richard, when I was a teenager, but when you have coaches that are just willing to engage with you and talk, uh, it makes the job better, more colorful, more fun, and helps telling stories helps in telling stories in ways that would be much more challenging if they weren't as uh, available uh, as often as they are. And then uh, lastly, uh, I'll give you two teams and I take the field. What two teams do okay. you take? Ooh, okay. I get two teams. Um, one of them is going to be Houston. Houston has ran. I, I won't get too nerdy on this podcast with you. Houston has ranked as the best team in college basketball, even though it's not in a power conference. It has ranked as the best team in the sport for months now, it will be the favorite uh, once the bracket comes out, no matter what region it's in, no matter who's standing in front of it, Houston will have the shortest odds to win the national championship. So I will give you the Cougars and then the next most likely in the group, I would, mm, man, uh, Richard, I would give you, this speaks to the season. It's an outrageous season. I, th I think the tournament, we always say this every year, oh, it's going to be crazy. It is, but I'm telling you, the variance quotient for the NCAA tournament this year on the men's side is outrageous. Houston, and then I will go Kansas 
Um, as we actually speak, Bill Self uh, recently was hospitalized for a procedure. The exact details haven't been released, but he's not coaching in the remainder of the Big 12 tournament. Uh, there has not been any indication whether he will or will not coach in the NCAA tournament, but he's said to be doing well, and hopefully that's the case. So with the idea that Bill Self will be healthy enough to return, obviously Kansas won last season, trying to become the first program since Florida with Billy Donovan, Joachim Noah and crew 0607 trying to repeat as national champions. I would say those are your two strongest in the field, but even then I'm taking the field every single time. Richard, if I even gave you Houston, Kansas, throw in Purdue a one seed, and let's say Alabama's a one seed, let's say those are the four ones. If you gave me those four one seeds in the field, I still think I would take the field because I think mm. there's that much uh, potential for some beautiful chaos over the next three weeks in the NCAA tournament. I love it. CBS Sports senior writer and college basketball analyst Matt Norlander. You've just heard his words. Follow his work throughout the tournament on CBSSports.com. Obviously, Matt's uh, Twitter feed. What other social media feeds, Matt, will you be filling up? That is that is more than enough. I'm just I'm uh, humbled to be joining you. It's, it's been so uh, humbled. It's been so many years since we first met back uh, back, back actually at a, C, at a CBS Sports. Uh, you know, media day for the tournament back in New York. I want to say it was like 2011, 2012. And uh, no, it was a really cool opportunity. I appreciate you letting me let me talk. And uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and have, a, so uh, have a great NCAA tournament. I know Sunday night you'll uh, start figuring out where you'll be traveling to. And, uh, and I'll certainly be reading uh, your stuff for sure. I appreciate your time, Matt, especially on a busy basketball Friday. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you, Richard. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Rhea Ripley and Matt Norlander for their time. If you like these conversations, uh, check out the archives. Um, some uh, some pretty interesting stuff, I think, over the last couple weeks. Just very different stuff. Had John Wilner on and talk about the Pac-12 media rights. Uh, Sweeney Murdy about his journey from WFAN to MLB Media. Luke Smith and Madeline Coleman came on to discuss what it's like to cover Formula One. We had three broadcasters from uh, MLS and Apple, Marcelo Balboa, Daniel Slate, and Taylor Twelman to talk about uh, their uh, starting with Apple and, uh, and MLS League Pass and, and how that's going. Uh, Mike Joy and Larry McReynolds from NASCAR, Jim Trotter, of course, the fine NFL media reporter. Should be stuff you like there. If you're into sports media, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks for everybody at Cadence 13 for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Sports Media Podcast.